This episode is brought to you by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, the only study Bible built on biblical theology. Marvel at the big story and savor every detail. Learn more at www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com. Hey, brother. Welcome to episode 106 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Guess what time it is. What time is it? It is question cast time, and I'm wicked excited. <laughs> Said like I a true New Englander. Cast. It's like the best time of it's the best time of the month. Is- and I affirm your use of the word "wicked" there. It's wicked awesome. I wish more people would understand that that is a justifiable synonym or or placement for the word "very." I had to stop yes. using it once I moved away because people got confused. Yeah, sometimes I feel a little bit irreverent because "wicked" is like a serious term in the scriptures. But- right. It is what it is. <laughs> not irreverent enough not to drop it on Question Cast. Exactly. So why don't we just go ahead and jump in and get started? All right, here's the first voicemail. Hey, brothers, this is Randy from Houston. I just wanted to call and give you guys a shout-out. Two days ago, you mentioned a little app called Scripture Typer, and it was a particularly hard part of my life at that time, and I actually downloaded it and started memorizing Scripture. I haven't done that in 40 years, and I've been at it for 288 days. Um, several hundred verses, and um, I'm at question 64 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I just want to let you know it's been life life changing. I sure appreciate you guys mentioning it in your podcast. And if you're still doing it, you ought to mention it again for folks like me. Thanks, and have a great day. Bye. So there's no question in here, but I really wanted to just affirm Brother Randy's willingness and candidness to just drop this little bit of testimony because it really was a reminder to me to get back into memorizing scripture and to use the scripture typer app, which is a really great resource. Yeah. The scripture typer app is great. Um, and it's awesome that Randy has figured out how to use it for the Westminster shorter catechism, um, because it's not really set up very well for that kind of thing. Um, they do make the company that makes scripture typer also makes an app called memory typer that allows you to memorize without having to have a scripture reference tied to it. Um, but it, it's just not as good of an app. But what's cool is their developers are pretty um, pretty receptive, and I've already emailed them a couple times and asked them to introduce catechism questions. Um, so mm-hmm. if everyone who uses Scripture Typer who listens to our show also emails them and asks them to introduce catechism questions, um, then we might actually convince So Boom. I know they said it was on their list of things, but it, that list of things to do, it might get moved further on them. So if you use Scripture Typer and you want to get on uh, using it to memorize the catechism like Randy has been, um, then email them and ask them to make that up. For whatever reason, because I want to agree with you so badly, I mean, I do agree with you very badly, but because I want to express that, I want to say the words, how about it? As in like... Around here, apparently that's a rhetorical, yeah, you're giving me a quizzical look. That's like a rhetorical question of like agreement. You know, if somebody says like something like scripture typer is great, somebody in this area where I live might be like, how about it? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. How about it? (laughs) Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania grammar is weird. It's a totally foreign country. It's like, uh, you do it sometimes. I don't know if you realize it, but the weird uh, Pennsylvania question mark that goes down at the end. Yes. Yes. The first time I ran into that at seminary, I was really confused because the person said a statement and then looked at me and waited. And I was like, I don't understand why you're still like, I asked you a question. You didn't. Your voice went down at the end. Right. Yeah. That is something that used to drive me crazy. I guess I've just totally become immune to it. But you're right. Like somebody might ask, are you going to the store? Yeah, exactly. Which sounds like that statement as opposed to, are you going to the store? That's like, it should go up at the end. See, even even when you try to go up at the end, you don't go up enough. You've been in Pennsylvania for too long, my friend. The real way to say that, the way that everyone else in America says that is, are you going to the store? Yeah, that's... And you're like, yes. are you going to the store? Yeah, right. And like, you didn't... You didn't. Do you want to listen to the next voicemail? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Here we go. Hey, guys. This is Chuck Murphy. Uh, I was studying through Westminster Confession uh, 25 and... 
section two really just hit me square between the eyes regarding uh, the church, the visible church specifically being the kingdom of Christ. Uh, they had a poll in the, in the Reform pub, a couple other things, but this that particular section really hit me square between the eyes. And I was really kind of curious to get your thoughts on it in terms of what does it mean that the church, the visible church, is the kingdom of God. Thanks, guys. So Chuck drops a really interesting question here. And this is something that, honestly, I haven't thought a lot about, but I'm actually kind of excited to get into a little discussion about this. So I guess we can answer this from two points of view, either how we would perceive the answer to the question in aligning these two terms, visible church and kingdom of God, or we could talk about it from the perspective of the confession, what we think the divines meant, but I'll leave you to start that off. So what do you think it, it means that the visible church is the kingdom of God? Yeah, so this is one of those areas that um, Presbyterians and Baptists um, who have more agreement than disagreement in general, but this is actually one of those places where there is more disagreement um, or one of the places where there's... Right. So what the what the divines are getting at is that all who are under the visible church, who are, are part of the visible church, we can, in a certain sense, consider them to be part of the kingdom of God. Now we have to be careful because we don't we don't want to take that in like a federal vision sense where there's there's like a concrete objectiveness of that. This just means that anyone who is um is comprehended under the visible church can also be comprehended as falling under the covenant of grace and ministry. Now, we talked about this at, at length in our baptism episode which was way back in the day. That was I mean that feels like a long time ago. Um, but it's something that you might want to go back and listen to. So more or less what the Westminster divines are saying is that when we have someone who is part of the visible church, who's a member of the visible church, whether they are an adult who's made a profession of faith or an adult who is maybe backsliding, who is currently does not appear to be a Christian, but is still going through some of the outward motions of it or the baptized children of believers that we should consider them to be part of the kingdom. Now, there is a little bit to be said about the fact that the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man during the time of the Westminster Assembly was sort of overlapping because these are men who are under the Church of England. So the state and the church is kind of fused together. But even in, you know, the the American revision, this this language. Right. I, I can get down with that. I mean, I might actually, I might betray some of my Baptist roots here because oh man in in thinking about this I love that that's just what you said man <laughs> how about it in thinking about this in terms of understanding what the kingdom is I'm actually prone to fall more in agreement with that just from the sense that the visible church is set apart from the world by profession as well as its external government discipline ordinances so I was approaching this question from are they basically saying that the visible church does bring about some representation, if only imperfectly, of what the kingdom of God should at least look like? So the members of the visible church have obeyed this outward call of the gospel, professing Christ in some way at least, submitting to baptism and placing themselves under the preaching authority of the local church. And all such persons who are obeying that outward call of the gospel place themselves in covenant with God. They, they've literally separated themselves from the world, and at least outwardly, they're enjoying the privileges of being members of the visible church. That is, they're experiencing the teaching of the word, they're getting God the guidance, there's a fellowship of the saints, all that stuff. So while in a certain sense, those who outwardly profess the truth participate in external covenant with real responsibilities and privileges, it of course doesn't mean, and it can't theologically mean, that they truly participate in the saving merits of Christ. That would be the difference. But I do think that they're onto something here, of course, in that just the mere representation of here is a church, Bible-believing their church that's trying to come under the headship of Jesus Christ even when there may be persons in that church that aren't part of the invisible church, I do think there is something said for them being representative, at least, of the kingdom, certainly as somebody who's on the outside looking in. So there's probably more nuanced distinction we could go into there, but I think that, I don't know if that's what they're driving at, but that's kind of how I'm interpreting it. Yeah, so what's interesting is um, I'll I'll put a link, you know, I should stop saying I'll put a link into the show notes because I never actually put We never in the do show it. Notes. But there's a there's a um there's a table out there that we've made reference to before that shows yes. the differences between the Westminster Confession of Faith 1646 and the London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, 1689. And what's interesting though is that although this one it also goes to lengths to separate the visible 
uh, church with the um, from the kingdom of God. It it moves that language, but it also um, defines what the visible church is differently. So let me read the entire um, chapter uh, chapter twenty five. Section two of the Westman, it says, quote, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, uh, of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And then the London Baptist says all persons throughout the world professing faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according to it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of uh, conversation, are and may be called visible saints, and of such ought all particular congregations to be constant. So the main difference, it's obviously changing what the visible church is, right? In the Westminster, the visible church consists of all those who profess Christian faith and their children. Right. Um, anyone who is in in the visible church, that's that's what the visible church is. So it's not making any statement whatsoever about the actual salvific status of a person in uh, the, in the visible church. So it's it's acknowledging that there may be people in the uh, visible church that are not Christians who have not made a genuine profession of faith, who do not have saving faith in Christ. Um, there are children in the church that are comprehended as Christians, but will then later, you know, grow up to apostatize from that faith that was uh, delivered to them as children. But what the London Baptist Confession is doing is instead it's changing, it's sort of changing the game a little bit and saying that um, the the visible church is people who profess faith and do not destroy their own profession by a variety of. So those people can be called visible saints and local congregations should be constituted of people that fit that description, right. which are, like I said, people who profess faith and don't destroy that profession by a variety of. So it's, it's, I think that the people in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the people who wrote that, who drafted it, would probably agree with the statement that the visible church is the kingdom of, of God, but they change or they disagree on what actually the visible church is. Right. So I think, um, you know, I think you and I are actually probably closer to each other than um, than the Westminster is to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Right. Um, but I think that this is a major difference that um, typical Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians really need to think through because... You know, we talk about, and I'm all about um, kind of like the Reformed unity vibe that like regular Reformed guys have going that our show kind of tries to strike a balance with, that the Society of Reformed Podcasters tries to facilitate. But this is a major area of disagreement because this this drives our covenant theology. This drives our, or I should say is driven by our covenant. It drives our theology of who can be baptized, can take part in the Lord's Supper, all of these things theology. So I think it's just a really great question. That- it is really great. And that's why I said I'm recognizing I'm turning a little bit on some of those Baptist roots because I, based on how you just articulated there, I don't have any problem saying that because we're talking about the visible church and by definition, we're talking about only that which we can perceive from the outside. So we're not, we're already saying we're not making a statement right. about salvific means or efficacy in somebody's life. So I actually think that the LBC there makes an unnecessary distinction because that distinction is made invisible versus invisible. So I have no problem saying, well, why wouldn't we consider if we're not talking about salvation, why wouldn't children be part of the visible church and therefore the kingdom of God as they participate in the life of the church with the acknowledgement that there are tares and wheat in the church. That's just what the gospel makes clear. And what is obviously our experiential reality. Yeah. So I think I am a little bit more in line with uh, Westminster here because this just makes sense to me. And I think that, again, from the perspective of the kingdom of God being the place where God is dynamically or should be at least involved with the transformation of people and their regeneration, that I think anybody who is just making the claim that, yes, I'm a Christian and I fellowship and worship and come under the, the teaching of this particular local congregation— I think we can take them at their face value and that that definition feeds right into this is where the kingdom of God should be. If it can't be here, where can it be? And I think we just have to take that face value. Yeah. And and this has been one of my kind of ongoing criticisms of um, sort of Baptist ecclesiology in this area. And I'll, um, I'll let you respond if you want to, and then we can move on to the question, uh, to the next question. But um, 
I've always been a little bit confused when I, I talk to Baptists about this subject because it seems like they're making a they're they're making something that's invisible to be the definition as to whether or not someone is part of the so right. so they'll say something like um, the visible church is made up of um, baptized individuals who are regenerate and I'll say well how do you know who's regenerate and then they don't you know there's not typically a good way you know if I'm being extra sarcastic that day I'll ask them to send me the link to the regeneration goggles um, but but there's not a way for someone to see whether someone is regenerate or not whether their profession of faith is genuine or not and the L- the LBCF here is not um is not making that distinction they are rooting it in a profession of faith and um not necessarily in the invisible element of that but most baptist ecclesiology that i've heard at least popularly articulated does ground it in that um invisible reality of regeneration that that no one can and so they're saying well we know we the visible church is constituted of people who have this invisible characteristic that we uh, can't see. And what that kind of does is it, it makes the visible church invisible because there's no way to know if you can't see who's in the visible church because you can't see their profession, then can you really call the visible church visible? Or is it actually just the invisible church that you're talking about? That's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I don't want to like, I don't want to like, like harp on the Baptist too much. And like I said, the the confessional Baptist position is a little bit clearer than that. I still think there's there's some yes. challenges that I would push, um, which is why I'm I'm not a Reformed Baptist. But um, you know, my our our sort of uh, let's how do I say this? Our non-confessional Reformedish right. Baptist friends, um, I would just sort of challenge to really think through this element of your ecclesiology a little bit more because it seems like it's a little much. And I think you would find that more in the non-Reformed yeah. sector of. Baptist, because I agree with you. I think that that position there, that line of thinking is just illogical because what it does is it makes, it eliminates the visible church. There can be no such thing by that definition because they're making a statement of the heart and somehow saying, well, that is what leads to the visible church, but by definition, the heart is invisible. So therefore you can't have both. They can't exist together in consummate harmony. So that's why I'm saying, I think Chuck is onto something here. It's a really interesting question and I think it's worth discussing because it does, in some ways at least, shape how we understand what the kingdom of God looks like in our own time and in our own space, yeah. wherever we live and wherever we worship. Yeah, well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up the question. Why don't we move on to the next one? Here we go. G'day, Jesse and Tony. Um, my name is Cohen. I'm trying uh, to ask a question, obviously. Uh, thanks for the show. I love it. Really informative. Um, so my question is in relation to prophecy and preaching. Um, I know this has been a question you guys discussed a little bit recently. Um, so, you know, given, let's assume that Vern Poyser is just kind of off the mark with the way that he's relating prophecy and preaching. Let's say we're, you know, we're, we're taking like the, the Puritan understanding of the relationship between prophecy and preaching. If preaching is a, uh, New Testament, New Covenant expression of prophecy proclaiming for the Word of God, uh, that is the Scriptures, um, how is it that we as complementarians, I'm aware obviously of 1 Timothy 2.12, and how is it that we deal with the fact that Paul provides for women to pray and prophesy in the context of the church in 1 Corinthians 11? Um, He says that the women can pray and prophesy as long as they have their head covered. how do we, how do we deal with that if we're if we're taking this uh, you know we're taking preaching and prophecy to be uh, you know Old Testament New Testament parallels um, at least fulfillments or something like that um, yeah I'd appreciate your help with uh, thinking about this I'm thinking about this for a little while and trying to work it out and I don't know that it's as that it's as simple as saying well Paul says that women aren't to teach or to have authority over men uh, you know I'm sure there's some more complexity to it so. Yeah, that, that's my question. I'd appreciate any help, and uh, yeah, thanks for what you guys do. Bye. So besides having a super sweet accent, Cohen has asked a really great question. He's following up on all the heels of our discussion about preaching and prophesying. Yeah. So if I were to summarize kind of, I think, or distill down what he's asking, I think he's basically saying if preaching is a New Testament, New Covenant expression of prophecy, and he defined it kind of as proclaiming God's the Word of God, which we, I think, would agree with. How are we then as complementarians to understand Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 that, quote, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered 
dishonors her head. So in other words, he's drawing a line between prophesying and that there is a, that we talked about that basically as preaching or as a synonym for preaching in some, and then here we have Paul basically saying, well, women do prophesy. So is that in some way in distinction or up against the fact that he also instructs them not to do that very thing? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it might benefit from a little bit more um, clarification on our part. So when we say new covenant expression of prophecy, we use phrases like that. What we're really saying is post-apostolic expressions right. of prophecy. So there's there's the apostolic uh, office or the apostolic expression of prophecy, which is not actually restricted to the apostles, but to the apostolic age. So there are men in the um, New Testament that we don't have any reason to think that they are identified as apostles um, since the group of apostles are restricted. People like Agabus, who um, have are, are called prophets, they engage in um, oracular or verbal prophecy, but also sort of enacted prophecy, right? There's this weird um, sort of strange passage where Agabus comes up and he takes someone's belt and he binds his hands. And then he yes. says, God has revealed to me that this is how Paul is bound. Um, or I, I may have got that wrong. I don't have the But that kind of prophecy is the apostolic gift of prophecy. When we talk about prophecy and equate it to the, the sort of ordinary office, we're talking about the ordinary expression of prophecy, the, the ordinary post-apostolic expression of prophecy. Basically, what do we do with the fact that after the apostles, there still is a prophetic calling in the church, but not a prophetic office? In, so there, there are no more prophets with a capital P after the, um, after the close of... So to answer Cohen's question, what I would say is that in the early church, in the apostolic era, and the church to whom Paul is writing... There may very well have been women who operated in the gift of prophecy, right? We see right. that in the Old Testament. There's women who engage in prophecy. We see that in uh, the New Testament, in the the beginning of um, the Gospels, right? There's this woman at the temple that that speaks prophetically. Mary speaks prophetically. Um, there's all sorts of different in- of women speaking prophetically in both the Old and the New Testament. But what, what we're talking about when we say post-apostolic prophecy is we're talking about the ordinary office of the nor- ordinary call to preach, which is, um, as we've discussed at length in other episodes, is restricted to women because it's it's the office of ordained elder that is executing, you might call it the office of prophecy lowercase p, it's a prophetic office, uh, preaching is, versus something like um, like hospitality, which isn't an office, but it's not a prophetic gift. It doesn't necessarily involve um, the, the uh, expression of God's word to God's people on God's behalf. It's still a, a, a ministry and an, a gift that God gives, but it's not quite an, um, an office. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's kind of like where I was at. I find it what's interesting about this verse is that this is Paul actually really basically acknowledging and empowering women in a sense. So basically what Cohen's picking up on is that Paul is more or less acknowledging that women pray and prophesy. And so the question is, well, again, is that in distinction against what Paul says elsewhere? So what I think is interesting is even in the situation where you have a genuinely supernatural charismatic congregation like Corinth, where there are women who were endowed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy in the way you just spoke about. In the covering the in covering their head, they were to show submission to male spiritual leadership in the exercise of that supernatural gift supplied to them by the third person of the Trinity. So these women were, in fact, seemingly direct conduits for God the Holy Spirit. And even when they're direct conduits of God to the, for the Holy Spirit, they're still to do so in such a demeanor that they show that they're warm and happy and delightful and willing to accept the male and female role relationships as they're defined in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and in the law of God. I find that remarkable. Yeah. So I think what Paul is actually doing is he's actually bringing further depth to what he says elsewhere, that this is okay, but it has to happen in the right circumstance, in the right setting. So he, you're right, because in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul makes the point that he only wants men leading in the public prayer like of the church. He only wants men holding the legitimate role of actually leading the people in the time of like corporate gathered worship. Right. But I think you and I would agree that it's not illegitimate for women to like pray, let's say like in a gathering of people, for instance, um, in the right setting. And I would look to like, even in Acts chapter one, the apostles are all gathered in the upper room and who is with them? 
praying, Mary and other women. So I think it's a wonderful thing for men and women of the church to get together and pray. But what Paul's saying is here is obviously he's explicitly commanding or setting forth this obligation and the standard that men are to be the ones who hold that office, like you said. But that doesn't mean it's mutually exclusive here that these women aren't being used by the Holy Spirit. And we find even when they're being used by the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying they still should should submit to into the proper kind of order of how yeah. God has commanded worship to take place. I think there's something beautiful about that, actually. I think that yeah. that is actually the complementarian thing we're talking about here is that God is empowering and elevating women. And this is what's so unique about Christianity. And I think we see it really embedded and impounded right here in what Paul's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that I think, you know, we might want to consider, and I, I might... Um, I might make some people a little frustrated with me right now, but when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over, um, teach and exercise authority is a very particular phrase, right? And some, some interpreters read that to say, I don't allow men, women to teach a man and I don't allow women to exercise authority. Right. Other interpreters, and I would fall under them, would say, teach and exercise authority is, is a sort of compound function. And that phrase is standing in, roughly speaking, saying, hold the office of elder or exercise the office of elder. So that teaching and and authority, teaching authority, teaching authority, that combined combined function is the office of elder, which makes sense in the context because that's what Paul has been talking about for the entire time is qualifications for elders, um, instructions for Timothy as an elder. Timothy, you're to appoint elders in the towns. And then he says, I do not appoint women, or I do not allow women to teach and exercise authority over men. So basically he's saying, Timothy, I want you to appoint elders. I want you to go from, you know, in your town, identify men who can defend the doctrine, who've heard the, heard the gospel from me and appoint them and ordain them to be elders. But keep in mind, I don't ever appoint a woman. So there may be women in your congregation that seem like they're able to do this role and they may be capable, but we we don't appoint women to be elders. We do not allow uh, women to teach and exercise. So, so in that context, we might, you know, we might say that kind of prophecy that an elder engages in on the Lord's day, that kind of prophecy is restricted, not just. Uh, not just to men, but to men who the church has identified as having a particular call from God, including all of the necessary qualifications and spiritual gifting, a pulpit ministry for ordained, not even on, on general situations, a, a general guy in the church can't do, right? So yes, in some circumstances, an unordained man may be allowed to preach or encouraged to preach, usually someone who's training for the ministry. But, you know, the church is not to just let any old dude get up there and, and deliver a sermon on. Um, however, there's a sort of, you might call it a lowercase preach, lowercase p, that all Christians are called to, right? And we see that even in the pages of the New Testament, right? Priscilla and um, Aquila are engaged in teaching Apollos together. Now, exactly. that's not an authoritative teaching. That's not a, a teaching in the role of elder. There's there's nothing in there that has to do with um, ordained authoritative teaching. But if we say applying the word of God to God's people is what we mean when we say post-Apollic prophecy, then when my wife catches me being short with someone on the internet, and says, you know, you really need to be gentle because in all things have patience and thankfulness. And she take, pulls a verse out or a passage out and says, I was reading this this morning and I was reading Proverbs and I really think that you should, um, you should be slow to speak, you know, or James or wherever she's pulling it from, you should be slow to speak, quick, um, quick to show kindness and forgiveness, all the different, you know, proverbial wisdom that we have. That is in a sense, a prophetic word that she is. So where we, where we run into problems is like, we get confused when we talk about prophetic words and we think like Wayne Grumman grew to Matt Chandler, Sam Storms kind of prophecy, which ends up being like, I had this vague impression or a dream last night. Does that make any sense? It doesn't. Okay. Well maybe in two years it will like, that's not prophecy. That's just random. Um, you know, this is what the scripture has to say about the situation you're in or confront someone in their sin. I think especially when when a believer confronts someone else in their sin using the scriptures, that is in a certain sense prophetic. So women do and can fulfill that kind of prophetic um, role, even in relationships with men. There's nothing in the New Testament that says a woman cannot call out a man uh, in sin, provided that they're doing so in sort of this gentle um 
humility-driven attitude that even the men are called to take. So I think we have to be careful when we talk about certain terms, because the same term gets applied to different kinds of things that are related things, but not necessarily identical. And if you break down that compound description and become reductionist about it, then the example you just gave of a godly wife providing instruction to her husband by way of the scripture, you would have to say is being condemned in the scripture if you become reductionist about it. And that doesn't make any sense because like I said, we all know that we're called as as a community, as a priesthood of believers to be in a sense, always preaching the gospel, always instructing both ourselves and those around us. And so that's why these aren't mutually exclusive. And I, and I love this because, again, Paul radically affirms the identity of women in the church right. as legitimate disciples. I mean, he says that they're to quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And sometimes we just get stuck right. on quietly and submissive without realizing that what is so countercultural, even in his own day, is allowing women, quote unquote, allowing women to be the receptors yeah. of instruction and learning. Because... In rabbinic Judaism, that was not the way. Like the prayer of the rabbi every morning was, I thank God that I'm not a barbarian or a woman. So here we have Jesus, you know, really setting this entirely different standard and qualifying women, I think, as instructors in the proper setting. And some of, I think, the most godly instruction I get on a regular basis is from my own wife, who knows the scriptures well and is not shy of kind of calling me to account for my behavior or my attitude or my actions to her or to somebody else. And because she knows me exceedingly well and better every day, she is yep. exactly the right person to provide that instruction. And, and I do need to submit to that sometimes in the sense of listening to her and understanding what she's saying and knowing that God is in fact using her yeah. in that prophetic way that you just described. So I guess in some ways we need to kind of like blow up or expand our understanding of what we mean when we say prophetic in terms of how it relates to using the scripture to instruct and to teach. Yeah. In other ways, we need to tone it down. <laughs> but it's you're right. It's like language. It's it's um, vernacular. It's definitional. It's it, So that's why it's good to talk about. Yeah. Jesse, you know what time it is. I do know what time it is. It's advertisement time. <laughs> so we, we play around a little bit and we, you know, we kind of make a joke about about our advertisements, but we really do appreciate the support that Zondervan has given us. Um, and we are absolutely thrilled to make to make recommendation on this resource that we've been talking about. What is that resource we've been talking about, Jesse? So Zondervan has just put into print the their new NIV biblical theology theology study bible. And it is a fantastic Fantastic resource. It's it got, is. We've been talking about the 28 articles in particular on biblical theology, which are really great. One of the things I do like about this text is it's got its eye on the ball. So it says it's a, a biblical theology study Bible and it's trying to trace this grand arc of God's redemptive plan. I actually think it hits that mark very well. It, and it, yeah. these articles that are spread throughout really draw on these different biblical themes and give you a sense that it's been put together in such a way to really kind of get you thinking about the whole counsel of God in a cohesive way. And I just appreciate that because we're in our society, we're very segmented and we like to think of things, even the sermons sometimes we consume can be kind of disjointed. And this is just a great resource to kind of pull things all back together as it should be. Yeah. And you know, I've, we've had some people joke around with us about, you know, selling out to the NIV and, and it's funny, you know, reform people love their English standard version, but realistically the NIV is a phenomenal. True. Um, you know, there's no perfect translation, even when you read something like the ESV or the NASB or whatever kind of, um, modern, uh, translation that the reform community is favoring at the moment. Um, there are still always going to be things that you look at and you go, especially if you studied the language you look at and you go, I'm not sure that's quite right. So that's why we affirm the importance of studying the original languages, but not everybody can do that. And what's really great about the NIV is that kind of like the King James version, it's sort of become a standard translation for Protestant churches for our era. So the NIV is, is more widespread than almost any other translation that, and so it's nice to actually have a copy of the NIV, because when you run into another Christian, whether it's online or whether you're having a dialogue with, you know, your Armenian brother and you're trying to have a conversation, a lot of times they're working out of the, out of the NIV. And so to see the the words they're looking at and the translation they're working from can be really helpful. And the NIV is just a very good readable translation. 
Um, other translations serve their particular purpose, but the NIV is a readable translation that was designed to be a- appropriated and accessible to sort of your average Christian without a lot of um, advanced understanding of the scripture. And what's nice about this is you're taking a translation that the average Christian can approach and feel comfortable reading, and it's an accurate translation. And then you're combining it with something like world-class theological article, you know, 60, 60 plus scholars and 20,000 study notes. And so you're kind of coaxing them in with a translation there from that they can understand and approach. And then you're helping them grow by combining that with in-depth study arts, which is really just a great feat. And because we know that our Reformed brothers and sisters have their proclivities toward the ESV, and I know I do too, that's why we're giving an opportunity for you to actually win one of these wonderful Bibles because we know you don't have it and you yeah, should you exactly. should get a copy. So how can yeah. people do that? So you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contact um, and you can enter to win one of six copies. Um, and these are the nice like leather uh, leather cover copies. Real nice. Um, this isn't, a, you know, the paperback or the cardboard um paper covered ones, which are great, but this is a one that will last too. So it's, it's a, a world-class resource. It's, it's really just a handsome Bible. I know that that sounds silly, but if you're a preacher, if you're a preacher and you want to have like a good looking Bible to bring into the pulpit with you, this is a, you know, this is a good option. And it's a tome. It's a beast. And it's got it like is. the gold, what do we call that? Like the gold leaf on the edges of the pages. Yeah. So it's, I'd, I'd have, Maybe, did we talk about it being handsome last time? It just sounded like very Elizabethan and like Victorian the way you said that. Yeah. Like, such a it's handsome a com- Bible. It's a comely Bible. <laughs> yes. So if you're looking for a comely or handsome Bible, this is certainly one you're going to want to pick up. So go to check out, go to the contest and check us out. Also go to whatisbiblicaltheology.com and you can learn more about this particular print. All right, why don't we go to the next question? Let's do it. Hey guys, um, this is Matt McDonald from Louisiana. Thank you guys for the podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. My question is regarding the issue of women teaching and preaching in church. Um, what is it intrinsic to being female that disqualifies a woman from being able to preach? Um, I've been having a hard time understanding this. Um, most of the commandments that you find in scripture, it's easy to see the logic behind them or the principle behind it. But this, uh, other than some sort of sociological reason, which would make it contextual, uh, I don't really see, I don't really understand. So um, anyway, uh, any insight to that would be helpful. Thanks again for the podcast. Uh, it's got me thinking about theology in a way I haven't in a, in a few years. So I appreciate it. So this is another great question right along the lines of what we were just speaking about in response to Cohen. And I love that Matt brought this up because this is just a really honest question. I think we've all thought at one point or another and maybe haven't been as brave to basically articulate, but he's asking what is intrinsic to being female that disqualifies a woman from preaching? That's a loaded question. So it is a loaded question. That's why I'm going to let you go first. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to think I'm like a raging feminist after this this episode. Oh, really? This is great. Because okay. my, answer, my answer is nothing. Yes. Okay. I'm so, with you. So go, tell so me why. Tell me why. We have to back up a little bit and talk about some metaphysics and a little bit of anthropology. Why wouldn't we? So why wouldn't we? So um, there are two categories that we have to think about in order to answer. If you go back and listen to our Trinity episode, which was one of our one of our earliest episodes, I think it was like episode 10. Um, so sound quality aside, I think it was a pretty good episode. There are two categories. There's, there's nature or essence or substance. The Greek word is usia. And then there's person or um, the, you know, the Greek word is hypostasis. In Latin, we might say persona. Um, entity, something like that. And so your essence is what defines who and what you... So um, the human nature that I have is identical in kind with the human nature that my wife... Right? But you may be asking, well, well, it can't be identical because you're a man and she's a woman. So there's a third category of, of descriptors that we use called accidental or properties. Right? And these are things that there's variation within... Um, within individual instances of a given kind of nature. And these properties that are different are called accidents or incidentals, meaning that uh, just because my wife is a woman and all that entails doesn't mean she's not here. Um, just because I have brown hair 
and someone else may have blonde hair doesn't mean there's a difference in um, the fact that we're so when I when we talk about um, intrinsic qualities, um, we're talking about qualities that if changed make someone no longer human. That's what an intrinsic quality is. So my wife can shave her hair. She can, she can cut her hair. She could, she could get in some sort of horrific accident and lose both of her legs. Um, there's all sorts of things that could happen to my wife that could be pretty catastrophic things that would not change her such that she's no longer right. Likewise, um, I can get tattoos. I can grow my hair out. I can shave my beard. I can have a beard. Those things don't change that. I'm, um, so when we talk about the intrinsic qualities, though, we are talking about things that would make someone different than those things aren't different. So what we can say and what we ought to say is that God has I actually think that the question is backwards. Let me right. let me put it that way, is that I think God has decided or has decreed that certain kinds of attributes, certain kinds of accidental qualities are required for leadership. And in order to demonstrate who he is and how he has created the universe. He has created men and women such that men have the accidental quality necessary for the kind of leadership he has ordained to reflect him and women. Now, what exactly those qualities are, that is a totally different question. I think that's a, a very complicated question. But we have to be really careful when we talk about intrinsic qualities because we're usually talking about natures at that point. And that's where we go off the rails and end up in some kind of strange eternal functional subordination where we're actually affirming the critique that complementarianism makes men and women of a different nature because the the EFS position is saying there are certain fundamental natural attributes, that is attributes that come from the nature that women either lack or possess that exclude them from the kind of leadership that God wants. Now that is, um, that's true in a certain sense, but those are not a feature of nature. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. You've basically took some of the words right out of my mouth. I thought I was going to be really kind of contentious and with my answer, but you basically, you gave my answer. I mean, it's possible that what Matt is driving at here is trying to get to the qualities that you just spoke of. But if I were to go back to something you said just like five minutes ago, I was reminded in thinking about this, that you know, basically God teaches in the Bible that spiritual leadership in the church is a responsibility purposefully given to qualified male elders. Right. And that teaching office in the church is restricted to men who meet a range of criteria that he disclosed in the scripture. So like you said, just being a dude and being able to speak is not sufficient. Right. So the qualification is that you are you are male and that you meet the rest of these criteria for eldership. So in some ways, this isn't even a male versus a female thing. It's for qualified males to take on this particular responsibility. So the thing about this is at the end of the day, like in the final analysis, in some ways, the answer to all of those questions is, well, why is it this way? It's because this is the way that God has made it. It's the way that he has ordained it. So if I'm looking at like 1 Timothy 2, which is the verse that you quoted earlier, quote, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So what I find interesting is that Paul's rationale goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, all the way back to the Torah written by Moses. He goes all the way back to the beginning, into the story of Adam and Eve in the fall. And he basically says the reason that this is to be this way in Ephesus, whom he's writing to, is not because of some ad hoc problem that you guys have, but this is because this is the way that God made men and women to relate. So in other words, Paul is basically saying that the reversal of roles that is contemplated when all the male qualified teaching office is violated in the church is precisely the same circumstance that we see played out in the fall of man, where Adam abdicated his responsibility as the covenant keeper, and Eve started a chain that led to the fall of man. So yeah. this is his rationale for women not teaching or exercising authority in the public assembly. That, that's what it is. And I think maybe if I can throw like a kind of a monkey wrench in the question, and I'm curious to get your perspective on this, is we sometimes fail to understand like to whom the covenant was extended in this particular instance. And again, this is by God's design. So again, in the final analysis, sometimes the best answer as disquieting or as uncomfortable as it is, is because like you said, God ordained these certain accidentals, and this is the way in his infinite wisdom that he set it up. What do you think about like the covenant piece, though, that? You know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I mean, we have to be careful, too, because I, I think Paul's answer there in that passage is not this way. But I, I don't think that the answer is—so let me say it this way. 
some some voices in the church look at that passage, and this is a reasonable conclusion, I just don't think it's the correct one, and they say, look, the creation order, the fact that men were created first and women were created second, is the reason why um, why men preach and women. And it, the problem with that is it misses that second part of the argument, right? So it's, it's that man was created first and women, the woman was deceived. So the fact that the woman was deceived was not because the woman was somehow more deceivable, right? right it's exactly. not that there's some some feature in women because of um, some some natural or accidental quality in women that they're more susceptible. Right. And I there's no flaw. I hear that argument all the time, and frankly, it drives me nuts because on every single measure, women are smarter than men. Just intellectually, women on on average have a higher IQ. So if we're talking about just smart or liable to be deceived, sometimes this gets rooted in like emotionality or like all these different things. But that's not the argument that Paul's making because he nowhere says Eve was deceived because she's more deceivable because that's how God created her. What he's saying is that because the man was created first, and as you said, because he was created first, he has this sort of authority and covenant headship over Eve, and he abdicated that. Mm -hmm. This is the consequence. But all of the all of the reality of the preaching that he's putting into is based on these things that happened after creation. So so the deception that Eve succumbed to as a consequence of that and as a way to restore the proper roles of headship that Adam and Eve exemplify men preach and women do but but that's not rooted in the nature of women as more emotional or decept- exactly. you know deceivable or more liable to distraction sometimes you hear it's like well men preach because women can't have it's the same argument people make in the world. well men preach because women might have to leave their post um, to, because they get pregnant. And so men preach and all of that is ridiculous. It's nonsense. So I think what we have to affirm is that God has ordained a particular pattern in the church that is reflected in the home. And here's where I think is this pattern is to demonstrate the submission that the church is to have to Christ, right? So the submission of a wife to her own husband is a reflection and demonstration of the submission that the church as the bride of Christ is to have voluntarily to Christ. Likewise, the submission of a woman to the church in not seeking ordained eldership is a a picture of the same thing. But the key to that is that's a voluntary submission. And this is where the EFS uh, controversy, we talked about this um, in the Arianism or the, um, yeah, the Arianism, con- the episode, something cannot be both voluntary and natural, right? So saying that a woman has to submit to a man because that's just the way she was created, that makes it no longer a voluntary uh, anything. That's just a fact right. of reality if that's the case. But saying, well, no, woman is not naturally in or naturally, sub- but God has called women to subordinate themselves and submit themselves to their own husband and to male eldership in the church. That's a whole different game. And so if we root that that submission either in marriage or to the, to male eldership, if we root that submission in a function of nature, it's no longer voluntary and the whole purpose of that being a representation of the bride of Christ submitting to Christ, that whole thing has been. So it's important that we don't, I know like this probably is not what the question, I get that. Um, You know, we could probably point to general statistical realities about the temperament of women and point to those things and line them up with certain things that are um, beneficial or harmful in, in ministry. All sorts of people do that. I'm not sure that we, but this is an important thing for us to remember to get our language right. When we ask, what is it intrinsically in women that disqualifies them from eldership? The answer is nothing because they're dis- disqualified for eldership because God has called them to submit to not seeking eldership. Right. So it's not a disqualification in the strictest sense. It's actually a call to a different office or to a different role yes. that it precludes them in eldership. They're called to the office of submitting to male eldership. That office or that position is contradictory to male eldership, right? Right. That's something that I think we need to always put forefront when we have these discussions because we get so focused on what basically saying, here's what here's a list of things women can't do without understanding or without even saying 
can we trust God with this? Right. Can we trust him that he has actually created men and women to serve in different ways, to have different roles, and that there is an absolute beauty in that, and that God knows best. And I think part of the problem maybe is that we don't often do this well. So what happens is we don't often have good examples of this. But I bet if you've seen this done well, a lot of this argument just goes out the yeah. window. Yeah. And, and there's there's something to be said for the harder position probably is to vol- volitionally submit in humility and service. And I don't think that's any less important per se than the husband who is called to lead or the man who is called to lead. Because again, in my own family, my wife bears quite a mantle yeah. in terms of what she does to serve me and to serve our church yeah. and to be an instructor. That is no less important. And no, it's not less work. Right. Let's just say that. It's not less work. Yeah. So I, mean, I think Paul is drawing all that out here really well. And to kind of piggyback off that, he's making it clear that this instruction that he's giving, that submissiveness, is for all people in all cultures and all places. Because yeah. this sometimes comes up, well, he was just talking about his particular little realm in which he lived. But Paul goes out of his way in Corinthians, I think twice in chapter 11 and 14, to say, what I'm telling you is not just for you. Right. In fact, if you go to, I think it's 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, he writes, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So Paul's not just saying, well, we don't do it that way anywhere else, so you, don't, you need to do it that way. Yeah. He's saying there's no other practice in the church of God. This is it. And the reason all the other churches do it this way is because this is the way God wants them to do it. So we have to be careful about how we pull that out and because we're giving explicit instruction from God himself. Yeah. Yeah. So one thought that I want to close with just to sort of um, exemplify why I'm taking... So, you know, we can talk about um, the the accidental qualities of a woman as opposed to the accidental qualities. But the problem is that any one of those qualities that you would say is a feminine quality, if you remove that from any given woman, they're still, they're still a woman. So, so it's not as though these are, these qualities are so intrinsic to what it means to be a woman that to remove them renders them no longer. So we can talk about nurturing. Well, there, most right. women, on average, are more nurturing than men are. That's just a fact. But if you have a woman that, for whatever reason, does not have a particularly nurturing personality, that doesn't make them any less of a... Likewise, men, on average, are more aggressive than women are. But if you have a man who's particularly sensitive or soft-spoken and is not aggressive, they are no less a man than any other man. So, so that very reality that we would all affirm, I shouldn't say we all that, that I think most people would affirm on some level, there are some extreme people who would say that unless you're, you know, an aggressive hunter who has a long beard and kills things on a regular basis, man, right? There are those people out there. I think those people are totally off the, but that fact that you can remove various realities, various personality types, various things that we might point to to say that's masculine, that's feminine. Those things are not so intrinsic that they no longer, they render you. No- and this plays right. into things like the transgenderism debate. Yeah, that, exactly. That we would, we would say, no, there are things that are, and this is the constant problem in medicine. Identifying what those things are is nearly impossible, right? Identifying what particular thing it is that makes a person human a particular hypostasis human versus some other kind of hypostasis is notoriously difficult. And these accidental qualities are kind of the same thing. What make, what accidental quality render a woman, a woman? Well, it's, it's not just biological, right? There's a, there's a spiritual component too, because we would affirm that after death, the soul of a woman is still a female soul, even though there's no biological component. So we just have to be careful with that language. And I just want us to think about, you know, Asking this question would be similar to, although not identical, but similar to asking, what is it about pork that made it such that the... Right. Well, it's not quite accurate to say it's cultural or sociological. It was a positive command, but there's nothing about pork inherent to pork or inherent to mixed fabrics that is somehow contrary to God's natural. And this is the same exactly. kind of question. Is this is a this is an ordinance that God has imposed upon his church for a purpose. It's not arbitrary, but it's also not grounded in some sort of hard, firm, natural distinction. And this just goes to show, to your point, that if we are left to ourselves to decide 
how these natural things or accidentals define a person, we make an absolute mess of it. And so that's why we need to trust God. And so I think this is a really good question because it's driving around all of these things and it's a, it's great to ask. So I'm glad that somebody asked it because I think that's important for us to discuss. You want to do one more? Yes. Let's do it at warp speed. Here we go. Good morning, Jesse and Tony from sunny central Florida. This is Ryan calling. I had a question for you about the Westminster Confession of Faith, because I've been following along with the podcast. I've also started studying the Westminster Confession, and I'm reading um, J.B. Fesco's book about the theology of the standards. I've been learning quite a few things. Some of the things I've been learning (coughs) regard how when pastors within different presbyteries are going before the ordination board, they can affirm perhaps the doctrine of the standards, but not necessarily every single point. Different presbyteries allow for different objections to certain pieces of the standards when you're going before the board for ordination. So I thought I would ask if you could sharpen, clarify, or improve the Westminster Confession. How would you do so and what would you change? Thank you very much. I appreciate everything you guys do. So I love this question from Brother Ryan because this is just fun and nobody ever asked us what we would sharpen, clarify, or improve. Yeah in the Westminster Confession, if we could just have our own way. So is there something that comes to your mind that you would do? Yeah. So let me say this uh, at the outset, in case this ever comes up in like an ordination and crazy like this. (laughs) There is nothing in the Westminster Confession of Faith that I'm aware of that I would feel compelled to take during ordination exams. There's nothing I would say. um, Good disclaimer. There are maybe a few things that I would say I would prefer some clearer language on. Um, you know, and this depends too, are we talking about the 1646 London, you know, uh, Westminster Confession? Are we talking about the one that OPC uses? There's different versions of the Westminster. So I take the question, I mean, like the, the current one in use by most Presbyterian bodies, which is the same one. So for me, um, I would prefer if in the, um, section on the Trinity in, um, section three, if the the filioque clause was clarified a little bit. So one of the things that happens is um, the objection that the East lodges about the filioque clause, we did a, a, is that the dual procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, either as a single principle from which he proceeds, the, fa- the relationship of the Father and the Son, like that's one thing and the Spirit proceeds, or that he proceeds from the Father and from the Son in exactly the same way. The, the critique is that that makes the Father and the Son something together that the Holy Spirit is not, and so it renders the Holy Spirit as... So I would prefer in the in um, Article 3 of Chapter 2, if it somehow made a clarification that the procession of the Son, or the procession of the Spirit from the Father, and the procession of the Spirit from the Son is not symmetric. So I, I would articulate that as from the Father through the Son, which is is basically the view that the early church sees. Um, someone like Mike Horton uh, holds the same view, so it's not like I'm totally crazy. Um, that's something that I would like to see a little bit more clear language on. Um, frankly, like I'm, we make fun of it anytime we talk about the catechism, I would love to see like all the, the ending words like applieth and endureth and all these, these archaic words where they use TH instead of S's at the end. I would love to see that updated into more modern language, but that's just kind of a a sort of an auxiliary. That's fair. What about you besides, besides getting rid of the baptism? An obvious thing. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because in terms of improving the Westminster Confession, I would say that's already been done for me, and it's called the London Baptist <laughs> Confession. <laughs> uh, but, but that was like that was low hanging fruit. I apologize. Yeah. But uh, all joking aside, I think that you know, there's of course so many things that I find agreement with in the WCF. But I would say I would like to see like a more in depth articulation of adoption. So yeah. chapter 12 is just one paragraph on adoption. And I just find that I wish it was more fully orbed because, you know, the, there's so much in the WCF that is appropriately emphasizing the covenantal nature of our relationship with God. And I think it kind of gets disjointed from adoption. And I wish those were fused together a little bit more, or at least yeah. elaborated. So we, we have the first Adam upon obedience to the covenant of works. He was supposed to enter into life, you know, like a, a new quality of life, one that confirmed and conform to righteousness and divine blessing. And of course, failing to obey and forfeiting those covenantal blessings, the first Adam established the historical and theological necessity for 
the covenantal ministry of the last Adam. Yeah. And so we have Christ's redemptive work as the last Adam was exhaustively covenantal. And by faithful covenant keeping and by enduring the covenantal curse as the chief sin bearer, Christ inherited those promises and those eschatological blessings. And that is what adoption is. Yeah. And so there's there's a it's a good description of adoption. And far be it from me because these divines have articulated things and really defined things in, in such a wonderfully beautiful way. I mean, the turn of phrase and the fidelity of scriptures is absolutely glorious. I would just wish if you, if you gave it to me and said, what would you like to change there? I, I would just kind of expand that, push it out and really tie it in to how adoption and covenant, which is already so so beautifully woven throughout, would be brought back into adoption. So that adoption isn't just kind of like something on the side. Yeah. It's, it's not like a side dish. It is part of the main thing that Christ does for us and in us. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, um, you know, thinking about, and we, we maybe need to do an episode on this, the ecclesiological, but thinking about things like um, the Ligonier Christology or the Nashville uh, yeah. Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, these sort of extra ecclesiological statements, um, some of these you know, the critique that I always respond to those with is that I don't usually have anything in substance that I disagree with those kinds of statements on, but I disagree with the fact that they exist because we already have things like the Westminster Confession. We already have ecclesiastical statements. So why are we creating these non-ecclesiastical? And the answer is in some instances to fill in gaps that that people perceive are there. So there are some things that I, I would say maybe um, we could do with an update in terms of adding to the confession things that have come up um, since the confession was drafted. So in the Christology statement that Ligonier put out, the vast majority of it was just repeated content. Totally, absolutely. Right, just regurgitated. But there was some statements that were responses to liberalism in the 20, 19th and 20th century um, that were very useful. And so I would like to see some of that stuff potentially incorporated into revisions that might happen. Um, things like, um, responses to the federal vision. And some of that is that, you know, the confessions are not intended to be for the most part, exhaustive polemic documents. So it wouldn't be appropriate to have like chapter 34, on the federal vision chapter, you know, there, that just wouldn't make sense. But there are things within the articles that those movements that the federal vision movement twisted, for example, the article on justification and baptism, it took some articles and it twisted the way they understood. I would not be opposed at all to, um, you know, Presbyterian denominations, NAPARC, for example, that's a sort of a, an association of denominations saying we're going to get together and as a, a broader coalition of Presbyterian bodies, we're going to revise the Westminster Confession of Faith and Diversion and, and clarify some of those issues, things like federal, you know, Pato communions already, um, maybe a clarified statement on Darwin. These things that have been left to kind of study committees, approved at General Assembly, but have never actually been made constitutional in that they um, they become part of the statement. Um, now, that is an incredibly tricky process, and that would not stop people like Doug Wilson from just saying, well, well, I affirm the 16th, or I affirm the Westminster Confession. Exactly. But at least it would give modern Presbyterians more ground to point at and say, look, if you're in the PCA and you want to teach sort of crypto federal vision theology, which happens all over the place in the PCA still, it's not going to fly. Because not only have we said at study committee that this is to be avoided, and t- but we've actually changed our doctrine or confessional uh, and, and excluded it explicitly. Um, so those might be some things that I would say are clarifications. But again, there's nothing in the in the Westminster Confession, in the at least in the modern versions, that I would take. Ex- that makes sense. I think what somebody needs to do is take the confes- confessions and make them only with memes. Yes, that's a great idea. That is a phenomenal. That would be idea. hilarious. So, so uh, we can kind of wrap this up. I saw a meme the other day that was like, um, <laughs> that was like a, it was like Great segue. Westminster Confession of Faith, and then it was you know like London Baptist Confession of Faith, and it said like rough draft and final copy. <laughs> so that's for you. But then I saw another one where it was like, um, it was like a kid writing a test, and then another kid looking over his shoulder, and the one the, the uh, test said Westminster Confession of Faith, and the kid who was looking over his shoulder said. I've seen so, that. So that's there's nothing worse than cheating on a test except cheating on a test and still getting the you have Ooh. with the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Wow. Wow. I'm glad Bazinga. I'm glad we Yeah, I'm glad we glad we ended on that. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to call us and let us know. I don't know what Jesse is like. <laughs> I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that. with that. Yeah, that was a I'm total sucker punch, that. and I'm I'm okay with oh. that. 
Yeah, that was... So if you want to call us and let us know which confession you use or yell at either one of us now because we basically have just both (laughs) picked the low fruit off the tree by making fun of each of those confessions, then you can do that by calling 607-444-2767. Yeah, contractually obligated. How about it? How about it? Um, and also, you know, we don't, we don't do this very often. Um, we don't have a lot of costs and we've been able to maintain like our website and our equipment without having to dip into personal funds. And that's a huge, but if you want to support the show financially, there's a number of ways you can do it. Um, you can go to reform, uh, patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. And we have it set up so you can, um, you can contribute a monthly gift if you want. You know, we have one person that does a dollar a month, and we love that. We than that. And um, if you want to do like a one-time gift, which we also get occasionally, uh, you can you can just send that to us on PayPal uh, address com, and that'll come through. And we appreciate all those gifts so much. Um, you know, yes. we couldn't we couldn't do what we do if it wasn't for um, generous and thankful listeners. Um, and we're really here to edify the body of Christ. So whatever way you want to help us with that, whether it's just prayer or you help us financially. Um, we appreciate all this. So let's summarize this question cast real quick. So first we learned we should all get into scripture typer, renew our interest in memorizing the scriptures. Yes. Second, that we discovered that you and I are pretty much more close than we are far apart on the visible church yes. and the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Three, that you and I love women a lot. <laughs> that sounded terrible. <laughs> and that's going to become a sound clip that haunts us for the rest of our lives. <laughs> I just wanted to bring that up in case you are ever involved in ordination. Yes. There'll be a disclosure that you agree with everything in the Westminster and then that we love yes. women a lot, especially our wives, but we affirm women a there lot. There you go. I, I can go there. And three, we both agree that the LBC is perf- false. <laughs> Insert Donald Trump mean going wrong. <laughs> All right. Oh, uh, well, this has been great. Let's do it again sometime. Let's do it again uh, next month. Same time next month. Well, until then... Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm far from home?